Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the cover article of this year's June issue of The Atlantic magazine concerned a woman called Lola. My Family's Slave was written by Alex Tizon, a Pulitzer Prize-winning Filipino-American writer. Lola had lived with the Tizon family and cared for them since before Alex was born. She had come with them from the Philippines to the United States. To Alex and his siblings, it had always seemed like she was part of the family, until it didn't. The title of the article was not an attention-getting ploy. It was Alex's choice for a story he had struggled to tell. The essay had been ready for publication since January, but was sidelined repeatedly by Trump administration news. In March, Alex died suddenly and unexpectedly. When the article finally hit the internet and newsstands, Alex wasn't there to defend himself. His family took the brunt of the extreme reactions that ensued. Still in the wake of these events, Alex's wife, Melissa Tizon, met with her sister-in-law, Ling Tizon Quillen, recently to be interviewed by the Filipino-American writer and activist, Jose Antonio Vargas. Their conversation offers a depth of insight on an incredibly personal level into a complex human trafficking story that may seem hard to believe, but must be believed and better understood. Melissa Tizon, Ling Tizon Quillen, and Jose Antonio Vargas spoke at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Visitors Center on September 6th. Sonia Harris recorded the discussion. Hi. Good afternoon. I don't know about you. Are you nervous? Like, I'm getting a little nervous because we're talking about something incredibly personal. Like, there's nothing more personal than talking about family. And so I just want everybody to just kind of loosen up a little bit. Just take a breathe. Just breathe. Um, (laughs) And actually, Melissa and I were just joking, sort of, that before we start this off, given that I don't know how many other events are happening in the country right now where there are actually three Filipinos on a stage. (laughs) Not as peripheral, not as marginalized, not as minorities, but as mainstream and centralizing our stories, which is something that we rarely ever see anywhere. So just big kudos. Uh, for that. But when we were talking, I wanted, when we get started, to share our nicknames. Because Filipinos, our names are not really our names. It's always a nickname. So can we get, you start. It was Bilingai, and uh, shortened to Lingai, and now I go by Ling, which is actually a nickname. And my Filipino nickname is Misa, which is short for the way Filipinos pronounce Melissa. They pronounce it Melissa. And um, Alex liked to give us variations on our nickname, so he made Misa Miso, and then he made it mi- Miso Soup, and then he made it just Supers. So that was, I have a variation of nicknames from Alex. Uh, so mine is Pepeton. Uh, <laughs> Pepe is for Jose, and Ton is for Antonio, so you Pepe plus Ton, Pepe Ton. So my family calls me 
Um, and <laughs> just now, now that we're in that equal footing of having nicknames, um, I just want to actually, before we get started, to ask how many people here are Filipinos? Can you raise your hands? Okay. Uh, and keep them up, keep them up. How many people here remember exactly the time where you were when you read this story? I was at a Starbucks in Texas, is where I was. And before we kind of get started with this conversation, I think it's really important that we contextualize the story even more, given that we are in Seattle, the land of Carlos Bolosan, given that we are in one of the more um, highly concentrated Filipino-American um, cities in the country, and given how rare, as I mentioned, it is to see Filipinos and Filipino life portrayed in the way that it was portrayed in this, um, in this cover story. And in many ways, to me, um, as a journalist, as someone who's Filipino and as someone who's an immigrant, um, I related a lot to Alex. Um, actually, I knew of him, of him, I didn't know him, I knew of him, because there weren't that many Filipino Americans, apparently, who had won a Pulitzer, so we had shared that somewhat in common. So people were like, hey, do you know Alex? No, I don't. But I'm sure I do. He's a kuya, because everybody in the family is a kuya, older brother. Um, but it was fascinating reading this, this essay, and, and that's why I'm so, uh, I feel so privileged that Melissa and Ling asked me to join them tonight, because it was almost as if <laughs> in our culture, there's, there's a word called hiya, uh, which means shame which means you're not supposed to talk about certain things. And as I kept reading and flipping and reading and highlighting and reading, I kept thinking, this is like one big secret that a family, I can only imagine what, had, what must that have been like to tell that story. And not just within family, but to share it with everybody else. Because once you share, Melissa and I were talking, once you share a story, it's not yours anymore. Right? All of a sudden, people project all of their biases <laughs> and their own personal feelings and histories to something that's not theirs, but now they feel like it's theirs. So I kind of want to start with that, with both of you, is to really talk about the process of the story. Melissa, I remember when you and I first talked on the phone, I, I was asking, and I want to ask you now, like, how long has this story kind of been in waiting for Alex? Well, Alex wanted to write the story at least five years ago, possibly seven years ago. Uh, Lola died five years ago. And he had started it in fits and starts over that period of time, and he could just never get it right. Hmm. So, um, and he just kept putting it down and walking away from it. And then um, in September of this year, he wrote it for The Atlantic, and it just flowed out of him for some reason. It just came out. And, um, and it was beautiful. And, it, and he, you know, as a writer, he, the writing process was always very difficult for him. But with this time in September, it wasn't difficult at all. You mean it this, just, like September 2016? September 2016, yeah. yeah. It, just, it just flowed out of him. And um, so, so the, uh, he turned it into The Atlantic, and there he had a great editor who he really connected with, and she made him a better writer. And they went through seven versions of the draft by the time that he passed away. And um, he didn't know, it was supposed to run in January, 
Um, but because of all the things that were happening with, with Trump, the story kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed to the point where he didn't think it was ever going to run. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then he died on March 23rd. And on March 23rd, the Atlantic had been trying to get a hold of him to say, hey, guess what? You're going to be on the cover of the June issue of our magazine. And when he didn't respond, they got really worried. Um, and Jeff Goldberg, the chief editor for The Atlantic, was, was actually supposed to have the cover for June. He had a story that was supposed to be the cover, but he read Alex's and said, no, it's got to be this. And I was, they call it, you know, I, Ling and I were at the funeral home and The Atlantic called my cell phone and they um, were so sorry to hear about Alex's loss and they said, but we want to make this the cover. What do you, what do you guys think? And we said, yeah, this was the most important thing to him. So, Ling, so kind of in the, in, in the timeline of this, so September 2016, it comes pouring out of Alex, right? Link, from your perspective as one of Alex's siblings, what did he tell you that he was working on this? Did he ask for permission? Did he, I'm, I'm just curious, like what, what was that like? So after Lola passed, I think we all knew that he'd eventually write a story on Lola, whether it was an article or a book. So I think we, and, you know, we'd ask him periodically, when, when's that story coming out? What are you writing? And he ended up um, you know, writing his book and, and publishing that. And then after that, it was one of those, now he's going to focus and concentrate on Lola's story. But I think as far as what he was going to write, you know, he kept that pretty close to the vest. He, he didn't share it with the siblings anyway. Um, but he did forewarn. I remember one conversation when he said, you know, it's not going to be what you might think. It, it, it's not going to be this kind of rosy picture, but, but he shared the first draft with us, siblings, um, October 2016. The first of the seven drafts. I don't know if it was the first of the seven, but I, I, it may have been, but um, that was the first time we actually read, read it. And all I can say was... Uh, I burst into tears immediately reading this story, thinking, this isn't our family. You know, I, I, um, it was an incredible thing to, to, for Alex to be able to be immersed in that growing up the way we all were. But he was, object he was a storyteller, so he could actually pull back enough to write the story beginning to end. I, I, didn't, I don't have that gift. So when I read it, I was thinking, this is a this is a story about someone else, you know. It was it was it was enraging, it was heartbreaking, um, yet it was beautiful, all at the same time. So many mixed emotions as I read that story. I was reading it aloud with my husband, and I I, I remember I was just crying the whole time because it was horrific. Many parts of it were horrific. Again, it was the first time we'd we'd read it. So. And, you know, actually for me, as, as someone who grew up in the Philippines and moved here when I was 12, even, even the use of the word slave was, you know, Melissa and I were talking about this, and Melissa has done really an, um, an amazing job just explaining to people how the story came about, because the process. And you gave an interview in which you said, you know, quote, slavery is the most inflammatory word you could use to describe a situation but it's also the most accurate word. 
And you know, after really looking back at the relationship and the way Lola was treated, this was the most accurate word. So I wanted to ask you, Melissa, like, you, you mentioned to me that this was deliberate in Alex's part, like to, to choose that word and to go there. Why? Yeah, we were talking and, and you thought that the Atlantic selected that word. Yes, that's what I thought. Yeah, people who weren't familiar with Filipino culture just decided to slap that on a headline and make clickbait out of it. But Alex wanted to use that word because he wanted to be brutally honest about what was happening. And so he, he chose it. It was the first time that uh, the family had ever seen that word used to describe Lola. And how did he explain it to you? Just, um, you know, we really, we really didn't talk about it except the fact that he wanted to be honest about what was happening. And he didn't, you know, he didn't want to whitewash anything. So I think if you're going to be honest, that's yeah. the word he chose to use. And Link, kind of to your point, like when you were reading the draft, you were thinking, this is not my family. What was your, you know, again, the word slave, like what, what was your reaction to that? It was a word we, we never uttered or even thought of growing up. You know, it, it, Lola was to us, the, to the kids, the siblings, our mother figure. I mean, she, she raised us. She was the constant. She was the nurturer, um, fed us, you know, and, and she was the, because of that, I, I think we, the word slave just didn't even play in our heads. She was our parent, our family. <laughs> yeah. and, and Lola also um, regarded us as her children, practically. I mean, when we were growing up, it was very hard to describe her relationship because we, we always said she was our grandmother. And um, when we introduced Lola to people, but as we got older, we, you know, we started realizing, no, <laughs> she's not our grandmother, um, but, but she certainly played a mother figure to all of us. So again, when, when I read the word slave and, and my siblings too, I think we were all, um, it was horrifying actually to read it. And I, I understand now in retrospect why Alex chose that. Was there ever a conversation between the siblings, you know, asking Alex, hey, you know, why are you, why are you going there? Again, I brought up the, the whole point of hiya, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there are certain things that you don't talk beyond the family. And now this is like not just within the family, this is something that he was going to publish. So what was the conversation around that? We actually, no, there wasn't conversation about it. When he shared the story with us in October last year, um, we all... Uh, we all read it individually. You know, we're all living in our, you know, where, where we all each live. And um, we, we think we talked phone calls individually going, wow, did you read that? And it, we winced. I mean, I'm sure we all winced at the word slave, again, because we never regarded Lola as such. Um, but we never questioned Alex. You know, we, we trusted Alex's, uh, the way he was thinking. He's the master storyteller. Um, we trusted that he chose his words very deliberately and intentionally. So we, we, when the Atlantic said, do you want the story to run? Um, even with his passing, we all absolutely said yes. We want to honor him. So there was, no, there was no hesitation at all when that come up. And Melissa, thank you for bringing that up because I actually really thought it was the Atlantic's clickbait strategy to put the word slave in there. <laughs> because in my head, I'm thinking, how many Filipino-American editors are there in magazines across this country? And would they understand kind of uh, the cultural nuances of 
being Filipino and you know, growing up were you having katulongs, and people know what katulong is, which is basically having help. Like in the Philippines, even people who have help have help, right? Like that's the layer of poverty. Like the katulongs have their own katulongs, right? So it, it was kind of interesting kind of reading that and trying to understand where that was coming from. And back to the story, I mean, I could just go on and on about the story, but one of the things I wanted to ask both of you is after... Um, after your mom died, Ling, there, there was a lot of effort from the siblings to, to take Lola back to the province of the Philippines, to, to Tarlac, right? To even build her a home. Why did, why did she resist that? You know, even before mom passed away, um, we, we would come visit. You know, by this time, we were adult kids uh, with our own um, lives and families, and we'd come visit, and Lola would share you know, some happenings that, are, you know, that have taken place in the house. And Lola always would share and say, but don't tell your mother, don't tell. So we would listen and we would just plead with her, why are you staying? You know, we're all grown now. Why are you staying? Um, and that's when we would offer to either have her live with, you know, one of us uh, to go home. We would pay for her to go back home to Tarlac um, or to build a house for her in Tarlac. And no. Lola would just not have it. She would just not have it. And that was a devotion that I don't think to this day we, we can comprehend the relationship that she and mom had and why she wouldn't go, why she would choo choose to stay. And, and now, this is to both you, both, both Melissa and Ling, like now that, now that Lola's story is so out there and people have put into it what they put into it, you know, the story itself, it's so rich, there's a lot there, but even just from that video and the other videos that you've shared with me, for example, that, that was created kind of from the family, right? Like the album of Lola. Like, how do you want her to be remembered as, as, as your family member? I, I actually um, have been writing down some thoughts, you know, anticipating this, and I, I if I can share just a, a few snippets from the eulogy, oh, the part yes, of the please. eulogy that I... Um, wrote when she passed. Uh, yesterday, Pastor John asked us how we would describe Lola, her life, the person she was. Humility, kindness, purity, sacrifice, selfless, unconditional love. Lola left a gentle but everlasting imprint on all whom she raised, cared for, met for the first time, cooked for, laughed with, cried with. She was the most selfless person, which in turn made us want to do for her whatever we could, and we know there are at least a few of us who look back and realize we could have done more. But Lola wouldn't want us to live that way with regret. Never once in my 48 years I ever heard Lola say she deserved anything. Yet she was the most deserving person of anything on earth she wanted. And now, the one microscopic thing we can hang on to in all the blackness, bottomless heartache we feel is that she is in heaven now receiving the abundance of blessings she always deserved. How about you, Melissa? Like, how would you want to remember her? So I remember Lola. I lived with her at the end of her life. I, di I didn't grow up with her like you did. And so she lived with us in our home in Edmonds for 12 years. And she was the, the center of our family. Uh, and she was the... I thought everybody came to our house to see me. <laughs> and that... but. 
after she died, I realized that it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't me. Everybody was coming to see her. I mean, it, that's really what it was. And then after, after she died, I, I felt like our family dispersed a little bit because she wasn't there bring, holding us together. So she was, she was the glue. And even after, um, you know, your mom died, but, her, but your guys' dad, Frank, would come to our house, and he, he just, I, he, ch he was friends, they were friends by the end. And he, def he, was def he deferred to her all the time. He had so much respect for her. So that's a part of Lola that you don't really see in the story, that at the end, she was the matriarch and she was, she was the glue. It wasn't me. <laughs> And why do you think, by the way, thank you for bringing that up. Why do you think that was the case? Why wasn't there more of that in the story? Kind of her, the fact that she was the matriarch of this family. Do I dare say, because I know this is being live streamed, but in the earlier versions that we saw, there was more about that, about Lola as more than just being enslaved. Yeah. And then I think as it went through the editing process, just for, for whatever reason, it As any story stripped, goes through. Away, stripped away to, and it tended to focus more on the brutality of it. Mm -hmm. You know, when we, when we sent in pictures for the magazine to use, we wanted to send the happy picture. Yes, actually, I was, I was struck yeah. by that, by the photos in the magazine. Yeah. But, yeah. And, um, but none of the happy pictures really made it in. Right. I, I think that it, it contradicted somewhat the, the main theme of Alex's storytelling, to send in these pictures of the five kids with Lola kind of laying across our laps or something like that. I mean, there were many, many photos like yeah. that and many memories like that. Um, and we asked, you know, can, can we have this one in the story? And, and you know, that it was chosen, no, other photos were chosen. But I think the complexity of how she was in real, I mean, there's the story that was published and then there's her. Right, and I think it's kind of important to make sure that we di differentiate in that way. And actually, now I'm really curious. I mean, Melissa and I didn't know each other. I just knew her when Twitter started. Like when the article was published, the Twitter storm about it was pretty. I've never seen so many Filipinos on Twitter who's not talking about Manny Pacquiao, um, <laughs> and it was pretty incredible. And so I jumped right on, and without knowing Melissa, built felt very protective of, maybe because I'm a writer myself, what happens when you put a story out there and people put into it what they put into it. And so I'm, I wanted to ask both of you, and especially Melissa, being, being out there publicly about this, like what, what was it like dealing with the wide range of reaction from people? Well, first of all, thanks for coming to my defense on Twitter. And <laughs> Lingai Ling and I were in, a, were in a Macy's in Portland when you called me. Oh. <laughs> For the first time. It was the first time we ever talked. I was with my Lolas, by the way. Yeah, I was I with three Lolas in D.C. And then you and were, we were, and yeah. we were shopping at a Macy's. And, um, and, I just, and, I, and I said to you, you are the only other journalist who I think can understand Alex. Because what, if you guys know Jose's work, he's just put himself out there and exposed. You've exposed yourself personally to bring... A bigger issue to life, yeah. and so I, you know, I just so I thought you were you're the only person who really understands this, and um, and you said to me, but the difference between me and Alex is that I am alive to defend myself, yeah. and, and Alex wasn't. So huge range of um, reaction, and 
Alex would say that it's all valid. He would say, bring it on, let's discuss this. Um, he, would, he would love to be here with you guys right now and take all of your questions. Um, and I guess, I guess I'd say that that is true and people should be you know, really pissed off about you know, what was said about Lola or how Lola was treated. But um, the, the one reaction that, that made me very um, upset was the Seattle Times, the way that the Seattle Times wrote about, um, they had originally done an obit about Lola five years ago and, um, and then the obit writer felt the need to go back and do a whole other story about how Alex basically lied to her by omission, by not saying in the obit that she was a slave. And the, the Seattle Times, they didn't bother to call any family members. They didn't do any reporting. They just wrote this story. Is there anybody here from the Seattle Times? <laughs> just kidding. But just you kidding. Guys, if you are, the Seattle Times knows how I feel about this. <laughs> so, but, so it's not a secret. But, um, but yeah, so... So, you know, I was able to slip in a quote because somebody there in the newsroom gave me a heads up, so I got a quote into the story, but there was no journalism done. It was just, it was a story, and, you know, I get a call from Dylan, my stepdaughter, from work. When the story came out, she was bawling, couldn't, couldn't work yeah. because of the Seattle Times story, and then I get a call from Lingai, um, just really upset about it. So that, so of all the reactions, it's all valid, but I just was really disappointed with the way that the Seattle Times chose to write about the story. I mean, that's not journalism to me, what they did. But uh, I wanted to kind of go back, like, was there a time, especially right, like the first 72 hours when the story was published online, and you were out there, was there ever a time you were like, ugh, I'm gonna stop. I, can't, I have to stop looking at this. I, or, or, or did you feel that since Alex is not here, that you needed to do that? You know, I, I think I was doing pretty good at not letting the criticism get to me until that Seattle Times article came out. And then after that, I just said, there is no way any news media is going to do a story about Alex if, if our family isn't interviewed for it. And so that's when, you know, KUOW uh, called and asked if I wanted to be on. And People Magazine interviewed Ling and um, our, my sister-in-law, Indai. We just, we don't, we don't want to be out here talking about this. We're still grieving my husband just died a few a few months ago, but um, but just I didn't feel like we could let news media write write about tell the story without the family. So so like I yeah I wish I could just give up and shut it shut it all off, but I just really feel like I need to stand up stand up for what Al, you know what Alex was trying to do. Ling, what was some of the hardest kind of reaction for you to swallow? Well, certainly, um, I'm human, so uh, we are human, our siblings, and, and when we read very hurtful words like uh, about mom, who we, who we loved also, but about, uh, you know, the Tizons should all burn in hell or be deported or, you know, all, all kinds of awful things, or, or about Alex um, only writing the story for his own kind of self-edification and his own guilt. And those were very hard words to read, very hurtful and hard, but again, valid as far as the um, reaction, you know, that gut reaction people had when they read the story, saw the word slavery, read the details of some of those horrible things that Lola endured. I, I understand. I think we siblings understand 
the reactions. Didn't make it any easier to take or read. And yes, at some point, you know, I, it, was, it was one of those things, there was overwhelming support, I think both, there was overwhelming support globally saying how courageous and the beauty of Lola's spirit and all of that. But then there was always, there, were, there was that small minority, I think, who was very vocal through Twitter and other medium. And um, it was hard not to read it, although it, was, it came to a point where it was like, I can't anymore. I can't read any more words about our family, you know, whether there was truth in some of what they were saying or not. Were there reactions that you thought were just thoughtful and beautiful. I'm just curious about that as well, because I think for me, I, all I was seeing was kind of the loudness of some of the negativity, but I'm sure that there was, whatever that may be, I'm just curious from your perspective. Yeah, it, yes, definitely. There were, in fact, The Atlantic compiled um, some of the more very supportive, just uh, beautiful comments for the family so that we had that. But, you know, I think a, a lot of the the really positive, empowering comments that came and the encouraging comments were about Lola's humanity and her spirit and her ability to have gone through that for most of her life, yet she still rose above all that and, and showed unconditional love, kindness, um, humility, I mean, in every, every part of her life. So that was the... That was that part that was so beautiful about the story, you know, and that Alex tried to portray that in, the, in how much she was loved by so many people, how many people she touched. And, you know, Lola was ordinary, but she lived an extraordinary life in that way, how many people she touched. Melissa? Yeah, I would just add to that that my favorite comments were the ones where people said, said I fell in love with Lola too. And I just, I wish you guys could actually get could have met her because she was just an amazing human being. But I think Alex did do a good job of making people fall in, lo fall in love with her. And then there, there was another really beautiful comment that I got on Twitter just about, someone said, I wish there was a word for when you read something that you love and then you realize the person who wrote it just died. Because <laughs> that, that that's heartbreaking and beautiful at the same time. For me, like the beginning of the story, and actually I wanted to make sure that I asked both of you these questions, like that journey with the ashes. So uh, reading about that, I mean, I had my own emotions. What was it like for, for you to experience that with Alex before he even wrote it? You know, uh, looking back now in, in, in this conversation, you said that September 2016 was when everything kind of fell into place, right? Like. Do you remember the memories from Alex about what was that like for him to go back with Ashes? I do. And um, that's one of the questions that we get a lot is why did it take him so long to bring the Ashes? And he actually, had, he actually brought them kind of subversively because I think you can't just bring Ashes to the Philippines without oh, I don't getting know. fees and taxes and oh. everything. So he had to hide it. That's why it was in a plastic box. We get a lot of criticism about why was it in a plastic box black box. But, um, but anyway, so he made the trip by himself, and I remember him taking the ashes off of our mantle, and, and I thought, wow, you're taking Lola's ashes? That was kind of hard for me to see him do that. And um, so he went off to the Philippines, and the rest of us went to a wedding in Oakland. And, and then he, so we were in this, at a wedding in Oakland for our niece, and he sent us all pictures 
of, of the, the family in Mayantuk uh, with the ashes. And it was just really, the pictures were just amazing. We were blown away. Um, and I know it was a very powerful journey for him too, because even though he had, even though Lola had made several trips to Mayantuk, I think he was just still surprised at how much they loved her and how, how much grieving and wailing there was. And, um, yeah, and so I think that closure is possibly what made it so easy for him to write the story in September. So he did, he did that trip in July, yeah. and then he started writing the story in September. What was your memory of it, the way Alex well, told it, you about it? Yeah, Alex, um, he videotaped part of that. Oh. When, when he, the way he, the video that he sent to us was um, from the view of him driving, you know, the driver in the jeepney, I believe, and driving into um, the province. So you really got the feel, you know, you got the feel of the anticipation of this, the, the feelings he must have been having as far as not knowing how he would be received, um, how they would react. And so he really gave us that feeling, that sense of being there. And, and um, Ling, like what, what was through the years, the interaction between his family, uh, her family in Tarlac and your family? Was, was there a lot of interaction at all? Or? Um, not, not so much. I mean, our, one of our brothers, Albert, was a missionary in the Philippines for 10 years. So he and his family were there. So they would go to the province occasionally to be there when Lola would come to visit from the States. Um, that interaction would happen, but, but you know, day-to-day, -day, month to month, or, you know, we, we didn't really have any interaction with Lola's family um, in Tarlac uh, until recently. And, so, and then, actually, I wanted to ask about that. What has that been like? So now there's a story, it's an international story, right? Um, I mean, I, I, I don't think I've heard from as many cousins in the Philippines since I came out as undocumented until the story came out. They're like, hey, do you know this reporter? I'm like, no, I actually don't know him. But like, what has it been like dealing with that kind of, that attention from the Philippines and even from Lola's family members? It's, you know, it hasn't been easy. This has been really hard for Lola's family because, because they were just as shocked as we were when this story came out. And so you can imagine, you know, they had a family member who they didn't see for a long time. And, and Lola did get back in touch with them and visit them pretty regularly at the end of her life. But just if you can imagine, you know, being them and then reading about all the brutality that that she faced, it, it, it's been very difficult for them. And they, and they are not used to media attention and they, they live in this province and suddenly all this media were coming, knocking on their doors and they didn't know what to do and they were, you know, it was just, it was hard for them. And actually, I remember one of the people I talked to right after the article was published was um, Ai-jen Poo from the National Domestic Workers Alliance. It's a wonderful organization if you don't know about it. Because um, Aja and I were just talking about, here's the story, right? And the fact that that is still happening, right? That there's still absolutely that kind of servitude all around us. And actually, I wanted to ask both of you, like, given that this story, that Alex's story in some ways has been a catalyst for kind of opening this conversation, right? Um, how... What, what else do you think can happen in terms of starting that conversation and making sure we're talking about the fact that that's still happening? Well, just 
just awareness. I mean, um, I know we have some community partner tables here that, that hopefully everyone will have a time, uh, time to, to look at, but um, that definitely is a big part of why we're having this conversation, I think, is to um, bring to light that this is happening not just in the Philippines, it's happening in so many other countries and nations, and, um, and I think that all of us can somehow get involved, right? We, can, we need to find out how we can get involved and keep bringing awareness um, to you know, stop or prevent whatever laws or loopholes are out there that, that allow this to continue to happen you know, in the Philippines or, or here in the US, actually. Yeah, it's, and it's awareness and understanding of what slavery can, can look like in t today. Because a lot of people think of Slaver, institutionalized slavery, you know, in American history, but it can look different. And so I think this is a way of showing how different it can look. And, and Ling, I wanted to ask you specifically, given, you know, the, the shock of first reading that draft, like, what did it feel like to read that draft and realizing that this was happening in your family and you didn't know about it? Um, I, I was angry. I was so angry at my parents. So a lot of, again, Alex hadn't shared the, the contents of the story with us. So when I read it from beginning to end, there were parts I wasn't even aware of, right? I was young. We were very young kids, but um, that, that it was happening. And there was a lot of abuse, I think, early on when we were all kids or not even born. Um, when, you know, Lola had been with mom and dad for over 20 years, I believe, before we moved, before the family um, moved to the U.S. So hearing and reading some of the, what Lola endured in those early years was just heartbreaking. And, um, you know, as, as we got older and as, we, you know, when we moved to the U.S., there was, uh, there was less of the, of the physical abuse, let's say. I, I saw it one time when I was nine. Um, but the emotional and verbal abuse continued for you know, most of uh, the time that my mom was alive. Um, so there was, a, there was a, a mixture of guilt and shame and just incredulous that this was happening. It, it happened while we were all these little kids running around and moving seven times and um, you know, not, not understanding it. You know, when we were kids, we would, there was definitely a contradiction in the way we were being taught and what we were observing, right? Respect your elders. Um, but that wasn't happening, right, in our, what we saw every day. So what was getting lost in the translation? I think too often in, in, in immigrant families, right, mm -hmm. there's, this, there's the subtext, yeah. <laughs> and there's just the stuff that you just don't talk about. Was this just one of those things just like, it was just not, Lola was just there, you know that she was there, but her history, mm -hmm. like, when did you start it? being intrigued or curious about that? Well, Alex was the journalist from early, early on, so I think he interviewed Lola, mom, dad, you know? It was just part of his nature. I think the rest of us, and I guess I can just speak for myself, I only wished that I would have spent more time inquiring about those days. I didn't know about uh, some, of the, some of the examples that Alex wrote. I, I didn't I wasn't aware. And I think that's the part that was infuriating and so hard to read that she went through that. You know, she actually went through those things and 
you know, we didn't talk about it. Or my, our parents didn't talk about it, certainly. Um, and Lola didn't either. You know, Lola didn't share that with us kids. Melissa, when you and I first spoke, I remember you saying to me that in some ways you thought that, and you think that this was the story that Alex was born to write, that this is what had been working on. And you know, uh, let's also be, um, let, let's make sure we contextualize this properly. We're talking about a journalist, like Alex was not uh, a superficial crash and burn journalist. Alex was a contextual storyteller who believed in the power of complex stories to liberate people, right? The story of, of, the, of, of, the missing, of the missing family members in Alaska, his memoir. If you haven't read Alex's memoir, by the way, it's one of the few memoirs about Asian male masculinity that exists anywhere in American, um, kind, of in, kind of the English American language in that way. Um, but why did you say that? Why, why do you say that in some ways this is the story that he had been kind of you know, working for his entire life? He told me that. He specifically said that. five, at least five years ago that <clears throat> this was a story that he was born to write. And he was frustrated because it wasn't coming out then. And five years ago, he couldn't make it happen. And Alex believed that every person had an epic story. So if you were just talking to him, he didn't, he didn't like to make small talk. He wanted to know what your epic story was. He always dove into it. And that's why... You know, he loved journalism so much. It was such a good fit for him. He struggled with his identity as an Asian male growing up in America, struggled with it his whole life. But then through journalism, he found, he found him, his way because he kept interviewing outsiders, marginalized people, indigenous people. And he started, he started to find himself through that process. Um, and if you guys don't mind, I brought his private journal and... Um, I, there were a couple things I was going to read that that indicate how important this story was to him. So is that cool? Oh, please, yes. Okay. Um, and I, I never read any of this until after he passed away. So, And I just read some of it this morning, and the Gates Foundation let me use the meditation room here, and I was reading it and crying, so hopefully I won't. Hopefully I won't cry. But I'm just going to read parts of it. This is dated 11-23-11. And Lola, when did Lola die? 11? November 7, uh, 2011. Okay. So this was a few weeks after Lola died. He says, Dear Lola, I am so sad you're gone, sadder than I thought I would be, because a part of me didn't think you could die. You were always so strong, so sturdy, like a tree trunk. You were always there. From the first moment I opened my eyes, you were there. You have known me since my first breaths. I have known you for all my 52 years. I have not known life without you, and now you're gone, and I am missing you terribly. It is an ache in my body, an ache, a heaviness, a gnawing around the edges of my own heart, my heart, your heart. And then I just wanted to skip over to this part. Um, I have been so sad about your life for most of my life. I tried to write a book about it, but no publishers were interested. Not very commercial, they said. The story of a small, poor, indige indigenous woman who lived as a slave for most of her life. That's when, that's when all of us kids fell in love with you. We pitied you and we loved you more. We, wa we all wanted to set you free, 
but you didn't seem to want to be free. Why was that, Lola? I hope you're free now. I hope you are as free as the wind in the mountains of your beloved Mayantuk. And then another thing about Lola when she lived with us, Alex hated having the TV on. He hated the noise of the TV, but Lola loved watching the Filipino channel. And so this was their, the soap operas and the game shows, and so they would always get into a fight about this. So Alex says, that damn TV, I'm sorry about being so mean about the TV, Lola. I just didn't want Maya to watch so much of it. But anyway, I hope, Lola, that where you are, it is the Filipino channel all day, <laughs> every day, and that you're the star of it. And then last, last, this is the very last of it. Um, so they fought about the TV, and Alex was really cranky to be around a lot of the time. So he says, Lola, I hope you'll forgive me. I hope I am a different person the next time we meet. I don't have great hopes that we will meet again because I don't believe in the Christian heaven and hell anymore. But I would be delighted to be wrong, and I would be ecstatic to see you and hug you very tightly and for a very long time. Right now, there is nothing I want more. You are the best person I'll ever know. And even though you don't care about such things, I want you to know it. Oh, I'm sorry. Now I have to ask a question that you probably don't want me to ask, but I have to ask the question. Um, what do you think they're talking about up there? I'm pretty sure they're talking about us right now. <laughs> Pretty sure. Like proud or kind of like, like what, like what would they be saying? I think they're saying, you go, Ling and Mies <laughs> and Jose. Um, before I turn into questions, I wanted to ask this last thing. And I'm, I'm really happy that Ling and Melissa both brought this up, which is that if Alex were here, he would have enjoyed how much people are dissecting and debating the story. That's what writers do. We write something, hopefully, it sparks something in other people and people talk about it, right? And so I'm curious, like, if, if he were here with us, I don't want to use the word defending because I think that comes from a posture of, you know, I, I was in a few of my own Twitter spats with people, specifically Filipino-American people, who said, how, you know, how, why, why did he write the story? How embarrassed, all of that. And all I could say was, we should all be thankful that he had the courage and the humility to write it. Because you cannot have read that story page to page to page and not felt the angst, the pain, the anger, right? And I think above all the humility in being able to tell the story. So I wanted to ask you, like, what would he say? Like, how would he talk about the story to people, people here with us today? I think he would be filling in more of the blanks, more of the part, the gaps in the story that weren't, that weren't all there. So I think that he could, he could take it to the next level and explain more about what his thought process was instead of us, us just guessing about, about it. So I think he could have provided more background and context. Yeah, I, I think there were some, you know, you, you can't tell the whole story, right? I mean, he, he definitely shared as much as he could to paint that picture of Lola's life, but there were definitely things that um, 
you know, in the reactions, people were asking questions like, you know, did Lola have any life outside of, this, of the home? And um, things like that. And I think Alex would be answering that right now. And he would be actually probably um, channeling through us <laughs> what, what to say. But, you know, for example, you know, Lola, um, after the immigration bill passed in 1986, um, it took, a, it took a couple of years, but Lola, you know, we, the kids actually rallied and helped her to get her citizenship. And so she was able to get a job outside the home, which she loved. Um, in, in the brochure, there's a picture of her with wearing the hat, I think, the Norpak hat. But she worked there for 12 years. So it was something that was, she was so proud of. Um, you know, it was a, an ability for her to make her money, uh, to send some of that home, and just that sense of pride, right, to be able to do that. Um, so that was just a, one of those things that wasn't necessarily in the story, but I think it was an important point that he, Alex would have shared eventually had he been here. Um, before we take your questions, I, I kind of wanted to share something. Um, I don't know how many of you read this, how many times you read the story. I read it four times. Um, the fourth time I read it, I started thinking about, for some reason, Toni Morrison. Uh, Toni Morrison, gave, in my opinion, probably one of the best speeches ever about the power of language when she accepted um, her Nobel for Literature in 1993, which incidentally is when I moved to this country. And one of the things that she said in this, in, in this speech was this idea that, you know, we die, right? Like that may be the meaning of life, but we do language. That is the measure of our lives. And in, in, as I was rereading Alex's story and the way he chronicled, I think it's really important that we say Lola's full name, Eudocia Tomas Polido. Eudocia Tomas Polido. I started thinking of this, this, this part in Toni Morrison's speech when she said, the vitality of language lies in its ability to lime the actual imagined and possible lives of its speakers, readers, writers. Language can never pin down slavery, genocide, war, nor should it yearn for the arrogance to be able to do so. Its force, its felicity, is in its reach toward the ineffable. I think Alex, in this story, reached for that. And I think he reached it to the fullest capacity possible. So, thank you. So I'm gonna be a little strict on this. Oh yeah, please clap. So we have a few minutes for the Q&A, um, but I'm gonna be really strict about this, which is you're gonna get up and you're gonna actually ask a question, right? And not get in like a monologue. So as much as possible, please do ask a question. Um, we have mics, I think, going around. Raise your hand, please. Yes. Um. I wanted to focus on, um, you, you all mentioned all the different ways of interpreting, but um, being a real Lola myself, I wanted to focus on that word. And 
and uh, to remind people that it's, it's an interpretation of grandma. And my question is, besides Lola, who in my interpretation was your Lola, grandma, um, did you have um, the blessing or the opportunity to have your real Lolas with you? Because as an immigrant from over seven decades ago, <clears throat> I think only another immigrant could relate to the fact that when you leave a country, you leave behind a lot of family. I grew up without a Lola. On the one hand, I was a little envious that you had a Lola, in spite of all the brutality that came out and the shame, the hiat, et cetera. So my question is, did you have opportunity to be with your blood Lolas? Um, no, my, my mother's mother passed uh, during childbirth, so we never met her. And uh, also my father's mother, we were not able to meet either in the Philippines. So no, not, not for me. And I was very lucky and blessed to have Lola's, my actual Lola's growing up. And um, as Jim said in my intro, I, my parents immigrated from the Philippines in the 70s and they ended up in Kansas City, Missouri. And they brought all their brothers and sisters there over the years. So I have this huge extended family and they, they all brought their in-laws. So I have a lot of Lola's. And Lola would come to Kansas City, my, our Lola, the one that we're talking about, she would come to Kansas City with us and hang out with all the other Lolas, the, the comadres, and they would go to casinos. They, you know, like we went to, on an Alaskan cruise, and so she got to be like one of the Lolas. You know how Lolas love to go to casinos? Um, come, actually, it's funny you said that. So I, we celebrated my Lola's 80th birthday at the Thunder Valley Resort and Casino <laughs> in Lincoln, California last Saturday. So. Just wanted to say that. Any other questions? Uh, Melissa, my question is actually about Alex. I was so incredibly stunned when he died, and partially or mostly because he was relatively young and seemed healthy. Do you have any idea what caused his death? Have they figured it out? Yes. So I just literally found out from the medical examiner yesterday, and I wrote it down. Um, so, okay, Alex died, this is what it was, sudden death due to an apparent dysrhythmic cardiac event of unknown ideology. In other words, his heart stopped and they don't know why. Um, but, so on the death certificate, it's going to say natural causes for for real, like when I tell reporters that he died of natural causes, they always put it in parentheses in the story, but now it's official natural causes. And um, so we, we live here in Seattle, but Alex was part-time in Eugene, Oregon, teaching at the University of Oregon. And uh, I and, our, and Dylan and Maya, we would text Alex and call Alex every day and um, on March 23rd, we all compared notes and realized that none of us had heard from him in a day and a half in, in Eugene while we were in Seattle. Um, so we were really worried. We tried everything and couldn't get a, get a hold of him. And so I finally um, called the police in Eugene and asked them to check on him. Like, I'm so sorry to bother you, but would you mind checking on my husband? And so they went down um, to check on him, and it was literally the longest two hours of my life waiting for them to 
come back and tell me what happened. Um, but they said that they found him in bed like he was just about to go to sleep and he looked very peaceful. Um, so, and that's by all accounts, the medical examiner, the police report, everything, by all accounts, he died peacefully in his sleep. So I, I feel like I have a little bit of closure now that the medical examiner report is done. It took so long. I mean, we just got the report yesterday because they did everything, toxicology, micro testing, everything. So it's a little bit of closure, even though it still doesn't make any sense. But um, he did everything that he wanted to do. He wrote the story that he felt like he was born to write. He had a really great life. He used all of his God-given talents, and that's something that we can all learn from him. Any other questions? Oh, come on, you can't be that shy. Yeah. The story makes me wonder if this is something that is kind of secretly common hmm. in Filipino culture. That's for anybody. So I had made I had made the um, remark. So in, in Tagalog, katulong means help. So when I was growing up in, in the provinces, we were a pretty poor family. Like we grew up, it was um, there was no indoor plumbing, but we had a katulong. <laughs> like, and I didn't know where she came from. I didn't know who she was, but she helped wash clothes. And of course, my Lola, my Lola would say that she was one of my Lolas, but she wasn't. Um, she was just the katulong. So, I mean, I mean, we're talking about abject poverty, right? And so I think people are hired, right? And again, I'm not justifying anything, I'm just kind of giving some context, right? Um, when you live in kind of that environment where it's a barter system, I think people just work with people to get what they need so that they can provide for their own family. So even the katulongs had katulongs, right? But I, I don't know, but that's my family, so I don't know. That's why, it, I have to tell you though, it was really interesting having people react in the Philippines versus Filipino-Americans. So the Filipino-Americans here, and then the Filipinos in the Philippines, and how they were reacting to the story was really interesting. You want anything to add to that? Mostly? Yeah, I, I, the only thing I was going to say was it is common, as you know, as Jose was saying about Cthulhu's. Um, what may be not, what may be the secret part, if there is a secret, is that if they're not paid. So, for example, you know, with, with Lola, you know, she was basically promised by my father that when you come to the U.S. with us, you know, you'll have an allowance and those kinds of things. So, Lola trusted that. And the, the fact that she was never, never paid, and, and among other things, um, that's the part that's the secret, right? That's the part that shouldn't happen, but does, as we know, not just with Lola. Her question was, what was the difference between the way Filipinos reacted and Filipino-Americans? Oh, um, from, what, from where I was seeing it, it was just more of the nuance about servitude in the Philippines specifically as it relates to the provinces of the Philippines, not the cities, right? Um, and then a friend of mine, actually, who's in Thailand, made a comment to me about, Jose, don't you understand that Filipinos, y'all are like the Katulongs of Asia. I did not know that until my friend, who's pute white, said that to me. I was like, what? I didn't, 
what do you mean? We're not accountants and nurses? <laughs> I just figured we all were accountants and nurses. But apparently, no, we are, we are help in Hong Kong, uh, and, you know, and Indonesia and Thailand. And the Middle East. And the Middle East, yes. I have an uncle right now in uh, Bahrain. Yes. Yes, did you have a question, ma'am? Hello. So I have a question. Did any of you, did you or your siblings ever confront your mother about Lola being a slave? And what did she say? Yes, absolutely. When when we were younger, I think it was more of we were just scratching our heads at the, of the the contradiction of what we were seeing and and how we should have been treating or how we should have um, been regarding Lola. But yes, as we got older, so in our early teens, perhaps each and every one of us, the five of us, would have um, arguments <laughs> with our mother. Um, by that time, you know, our father had already left, but. Yes, and so the challenge there was that we would fight with our mother, and unfortunately, it would come back around to bite Lola. So, you know, we would, we would witness a scolding or something berating, and we would question or we would come to Lola's defense, and, and there would be an argument would ensue, and then we would hear later that it would come back. So Lola would actually tell us, quit fighting for me. You know, quit arguing with your mother about this. So, but, you know, we still did, you know, all throughout our, our growing up and, and then into our adulthood. I have a question. And I um, actually know Alex uh, sometimes early in 2000 when he wrote an article about Helen Clemente. Helen Clemente is a victim of human trafficking. So my question is, when was the time that Alex became aware the human trafficking issue? Because we were working on it in the 80s here already and passed the law in 2003 that human trafficking became the law in the state of Washington. We were the first state that actually have it done. Have any idea? I mean, I don't, I don't know specifically about the human, the human trafficking aspect of it, but I think that he knew from a young age that there was something very wrong with the way that Lola was treated. And it, it took him his entire life, lifetime to realize that the way that she was treated was actually the way that slaves are treated. Um, but he, he always knew that there was something wrong with it, always fought for her as all the brothers and sisters did. And, you know, and, and Alex always fought for the underdog. It doesn't surprise me, you know, that he did that story on Helen Clemente and just all of the, the other stories that he did. Actually, it's interesting you bring that up because if you do look at his resume and the body of work, I mean, it's the marginalized people, the people who are not getting the end of the deal. And it, it's interesting that his epic story is that person in his own family who did not get treated the way she should have been treated. And it took him forever because, you know, the hardest stories we tell are the ones about ourselves, right? That's why I thought when I read the story, I kept thinking, my God, they're having this private conversation in public, right? Um, airing it out in this way. And so, yeah. Yes. Hi, thanks. Um, so I, I come from India and in South Asia, the whole of South Asia, there is a very prevalent culture of domestic servitude which travels when people, you know, the South Asian diaspora, when, when it travels to different parts of the world. So, um, so the question that I have is about, you know, 
the parallels that, uh, did you see any parallels in representations of this global motherhood? You know, so mothers, women that are trafficked, not always with the intention of being trafficked, that's not the expression that is used. When women move from one country to the other and look after other children's babies, you know, so you have women from Sri Lanka going to different parts of the world, you have women from Nepal coming to India and, you know, taking care of different parts of the world. And I'm also reminded of the film Babel, where the Mexican mother comes and lives in America. So um, were you able to share notes with other Filipino families where there were other hidden Lolas, these global transnational mothers who had lost everything? No. <laughs> I mean, you, you, grew up, you grew up with Lola, but... It's it's not like there was a it's not like Lola had a network, and um, and that is one thing that her family said to me is that, you know, because when they were trying when she moved here all those years ago and they had lost touch with her, they couldn't they had a hard time finding her because this was before Facebook, and um, <laughs> I mean we take it for granted, but but now you can do so much more networking with people who are struggling with the same issues as you are and. Just Lola was just isolated. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know for sure, but I just suspect that she didn't have a network of people, and we didn't. You guys probably didn't have. No, no, we we didn't. I mean, growing up, you know, Lola, mom and dad threw a lot of, um, you know, there were a lot of engagements at the house where where Filipinos, other Filipinos would come, but Lola um, usually disappeared and went into the kitchen or something. So she she didn't have a network. Um, most of her life. I mean, the people that she socialized with were us, family. And she did, um, though, when, when she was living with Alex and Melissa, part of those the 12 years, there was a, uh, a woman next door, right next door, Filipina. Min Minda. Minda. And Lola and Minda became the best of friends. I mean, they, they would hang out. They went to, they went to bingo together. They went to bingo. They... We went to bingo with them. <laughs> but they would hang out and, you know... They spent time together. That's you know that was a friendship that she, that a real friendship for Lola. Um, unfortunately, Minda passed um, a few years into their friendship. But other than that, no, Lola didn't really have a network, as Melissa was saying. But your question is so important. I think in terms of like w once we see that in our family, how do we how which is why awareness is so important. Like how do we connect the dots and find what organizations can do some work. Like I would really implore everybody to check out the National Domestic Workers Alliance. I just think they do incredible work. Um, because so much of this is not just ethnic-based, but class-based and racial-based, right? And gendered. We're talking about women, right? Um, so more questions, please? Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Madeline. And I want to say thank you to Melissa and Link for sharing your story. This really cannot be easy. And um, thank you so much. Uh, I was wondering, um, what, other than outrage, what are you hoping people will be feeling about this story being out in the world? And um, what actions are you hoping that people will take? I think it is about awareness and checking out those tables that are, that are here and um, just being really vigilant about when you know when you see someone in a certain situation that doesn't seem right, learning how to ask the right questions to see if there's any way that you can help them. And there are there are signs to look for, and there are ways to ask the question. 
So I think just reaching out and not just averting your eyes to something that doesn't seem right. Hi. Um, my question's more journalistic or storytelling in nature, and I was curious what the inspiration or motivation was for Alex to ask the Seattle Times to write an obituary for Lola. And then secondly, um, your reaction to the Seattle Times reporter saying that he lied, essentially, for not disclosing his um, relationship with Lola and the relationship to the family. I think when, when we love Lola so much and she had an amazing life and we wanted to honor her, I think that's what Alex wanted to do when he called the Seattle Times and asked them to write an obit. And at that time, that was five years ago, and I don't, I don't think that he really had understood even at that time what his relationship was to her and what she really was and so it's not like he was just all of like back then enlightened and could have said hey Susan Kelleher um can you write this obit about my grandmother the slave you know I mean he just wasn't at that point and even and even if even if he was I mean obits leave out so much about people's lives and um that was that was the argument that I got into with the Seattle Times is just, they, they said that they didn't want a whitewashed obit, and I just said, what, what obits aren't whitewashed? You know, obits aren't the time to bring out the fact that your uncle was a, you know, an abusive drunk or, what, you know, whatever. It's just, I just, I think that obits are in a class all by itself, and so that's one of the reasons why I don't think it was fair the way that the Seattle Times reacted after the Atlantic story came out. Um, so, uh, directed towards Ling, and uh, so you said that you and your siblings uh, disapproved of the treatment of Lola at like your mother's and father's hands. Um, so clearly, like your mother and father had like either a different perspective or a different moral framework in viewing uh, Lola's situation um, than you and your siblings. Uh, did you find that that difference or like knowing that they treated Lola in this way badly, um, did that make it difficult for you to still look up to them as parents love them as parents? Um, yes, it was very conflicting. It was very complex. I mean, the, the family dynamic, and I don't think the word dysfunction was really big back then, but, but it certainly was. It was dysfunctional and we lived every single day not understanding. You know, we kind of lived it. We just lived it day in and day out of um, loving Lola as a mom, loving mom as a mom, loving dad as a dad, but still seeing two of our parents kind of mistreating, you know, very much so mistreating our other parent, our other mother. So it, uh, it was very challenging. It was very, very hard to... You know, we, we, we took sides. I guess as we got old enough, we sided with Lola, and thus all the arguments would happen because we would take her side. Um, and again, by then, my, it was just my mother. So that created a really challenging dynamic, not just between us and our mother, but again, with mom and Lola. It, it would just be this kind of vicious cycle. Do you yeah. want to tell the story about when Lola protected you guys from getting killed? <laughs> Because which didn't make it into the story. It was in the original yeah. version. But. Yeah, Lola did. So there, there was a story. We were living in the Bronx. 
We were in, uh, I think at that time I was in third grade, and um, the four of us siblings, the oldest one was out of the house, but the four of us were listening to my mother and father argue, and it, it was starting to escalate, starting to escalate. We were sitting atop our bunk beds, you know, in this, in this room that we four shared, the four siblings, and all of a sudden mom just let out this big shriek and said, I'm going to kill the kids, and... She was just out of her mind, you know, with this argument. So she had some scissors in her hand and was running up the stairs to find us. And Lola did this, like, Superman dive out of the kitchen and just caught her, basically, um, before she could get to us and wrenched the scissors out of her hands. Um, now, I don't know if Mom actually would have done anything, but... Just that, that picture, picture Lola, who's 4'11", you know, flying out of the kitchen and just tackling my mother, basically, because she was threatening to hurt us. And that was Lola. That was Lola's spirit. You know, she was like a grizzly bear mom with us, especially the girls. <laughs> um, she was so, so protective of us. And uh, that was just one, one of many, many examples where she showed that. I think we have time for two more questions. Uh, Lola, I heard described as an indigenous woman, and I wonder if since the surfacing of the stories and the conversations, if there's been a broader uh, system context towards um, feudalism and imperialism, and how the systems create landlessness, poverty, displacement, and you know the broader context of other nations that experience this servitude of women? I'm actually writing something about this, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's not gonna be out till later. Um, I absolutely think given, we don't wanna talk about the president right now, but given everything that's being exposed, I think it is absolutely an imperative for us to connect these dots and to uh, realize, for example, you know, when, when, when we talk about, quote, unquote, a global migration crisis, right, when really, in many ways, it is, in actuality, just the consequences of imperialism and colonialism and the reverse of that, right? And the fact that I just find it really interesting that, you know, people as labor travel freely, but people as free people cannot travel freely. Like, what is that? Like, how come this iPhone can travel to more places than human beings can, right? Like, I think all of these, what you just asked, I think connecting those dots, I think, is really important. Um, if anything, I would hope that the past few months have convinced us that um, insisting on simplistic reasonings is not enough. In many ways, it's why we are where we are, because our conversations have been very simplistic around issues as complex as this. Last question. Hi there. Um, this is a two-part question, sort of piggybacking on three questions that came up. Um, because in the West Indies, and also in Africa, this is a prevalent, almost I would say cultural issue with women in servitude. And um, what I was wondering, because it's part of the economic structure, isn't it? What I was wondering was, one thing, while living in the States, were you ever exposed to Lolas, like your Lola, in other Filipino homes? And if you were, 
um, what did you think of that? And also, I wasn't too clear about how it is expressed in, in the Philippines, whether um, it's something that's discussed openly in terms of how everybody reacted to the story coming out. What was the response there? Was there shame wrapped around it there? What, did it bring up a cultural discussion that wasn't happening before? Just wondering on both sides. So, so growing up, no, um, we weren't exposed to other families that had a Lola. Um, we weren't. I mean, when we moved here to the States, uh, a lot of our parents, um, you know, my father worked for the Philippine Council, uh, the consulate. So, you know, they always had, they were always entertaining at our home. So we didn't actually spend a lot of time visiting other families. So we never got that opportunity to uh, see if there were other Lola's out there. But in the Philippines, when you go there, in every home there are Katulongs and, and servants. They're just they're just everywhere. And so and, and I had been to the Philippines as a child and when I when I met when I met Lola and Alex explained it to me, it wasn't a surprise to me just because I knew that that was prevalent in the Philippines. Not that they're not that they're all mistreated because I think most of them are not mistreated, but um, but it is a common thing in the culture. Actually, I want to add one thing to that. Um, I'd mentioned that my brother, the missionary, when he went to the Philippines for ten years, Lola actually asked, "Are you going to have Katulong? You know, basically um, some relatives, Lola's relatives and the nieces, I think, um, were being offered up as." my brother's Cthulongs, and Albert and Janice, Albert's my brother, and he, they were like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> no, we, we, don't, we, we don't want that. You know, we don't want to perpetuate this. Um, but it was, it was sort of the, the natural question to ask, you know, is do you want some helpers? Mm -hmm. I have to say, by the way, before we close this down, we have really fantastic organizations here with us, and I hope that you guys choose to stay and actually we have the um, Northwest Immigration Rights Project, the Asian American Journalist Association, the Filipino American Historical Society, the Mayan Migrant Workers Association, I wanna talk to you guys, and Define American, my organization. So we're all here, so please check that out. Check, check those organizations out. Um, I wanted to kind of end this with Alex, since we started with Alex. Um, Alex was, uh, colleagues, was a, with a wonderful journalist uh, Jackie Banaszinski, Banaszinski, I didn't know how to pronounce her name, but apparently one, one night, late at night, uh, she fired up a question to everybody, her friends, asking, why do we need stories? And Alex apparently was the first person to respond, and Alex wrote, middle of the night, he, re he responded, stories give shape to experience and allow us to go through life unblind. Without them, the stuff that happens would float around in some glob and none of it would mean anything. Once you have a version of what happened, all the other good stuff about being human can come into play. You can laugh, feel awe, commit a compassionate act, get pissed, and want to change things. That's why I tell stories. Um, profound thanks for Melissa and Ling for sharing everything that you have and that you've done and that you we will continue to do. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 
949 Seattle. Melissa Tizon, Ling Tizon Quillen, and Jose Antonio Vargas spoke at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Visitors Center on September 6th. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon.